Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Adrian Hyde-Price from the Department of European Studies and Modern Languages draws on the analytical tools and ethical sensibilities of realism. Good evening, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Kevin Edge. I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the University. I'd like to start by extending a, a very warm welcome to you all here this evening for the inaugural lecture of Professor Adrian Hyde-Price. Adrian is a professor of international politics in our Department of European Studies and Modern Languages, where he lectures on international security at both master's and undergraduate level. Adrian read politics at the University College of Wales in Aberystwyth, graduating with a first-class honours degree. His doctoral research focused on Lenin's theory of the state and democracy and was undertaken at the University of Kent at Canterbury. He subsequently undertook postdoctoral research in the German Democratic Republic, followed by his first lecturing post at the University of Manchester. He moved on from there to the Royal Institute of International Affairs, that's Chatham House, in London, as a research fellow on the International Security Programme, working on the East-West conflict in Europe. Adrian subsequently lectured at the Universities of Southampton and Birmingham, before being appointed to the Chair of Politics and International Relations at the University of Leicester. He took up the Chair of International Politics at Bath in April 2007. He's received research grants from a wide range of national and international funders and has been a, a visiting research fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation in Bonn, the Friedrich Ebert Foundation in Bonn and the University of Lund. Adrian's current research interests focus on European security and the Middle East, contemporary war, conflict and insurgency, the EU as an international security sector, and realist international theory. He's published widely in his specialist field. I'm sure we're all very much looking forward to his lecture, and I'll now pass over to Adrian. Thank you. Thank you very much for those kind words of introduction. I'm uh, very pleased to see so many of my uh, family and my friends, uh, colleagues and students here. I suppose I'm particularly pleased to see so many students. Uh, I would say the single most rewarding feature about Bath University has been, for me, the quality of the students. They really are the, uh, the brightest and the best, and they're a pleasure to teach. This is a great honour. Actually, I feel a bit like uh, Tony Blair at the Chilquot in, in, uh, inquiry. This is a, this is a great honour to give an inaugural lecture, but it's also uh, terribly intimidating. Uh, an inaugural lecture is the most uh, challenging of beasts. The challenge is how to please everyone, from your mum to the dean of faculty, <laughs> let alone friends who know you in a social context, and I'm sure some of my 
friends probably see me as an amiable, amiable buffoon, whereas the students I know see me as someone dripping with gravitas and wisdom. <laughs> At least, uh, hopefully, uh, it's not the other way around. <laughs> as I uh, prepared for this inaugural, I was also haunted uh, by the uh, damning judgment of Winston Churchill on the Admiral and sometimes NP, Lord Charles Beresford, of whom Churchill said, He is one of those orators of whom it was well said. Before they get up, they do not know what they are going to say. When they are speaking, they do not know what they are saying. And when they, then, when they have sat down, they do not know what they have said. To avoid this danger... I thought about some previous inaugurals that I've attended and what lessons I could draw from them. There are some very famous inaugurals. The, uh, the one that I remember most is, of course, Richard Whitman's uh, incredible uh, piece on muscles from Brussels. This is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, I thought he was going to give a talk on this uh, fine actor, but no, it was actually on the European Union. He gave a shock and awe performance of uh, a very polished and very professional, and even I was nearly convinced that uh, Brussels had muscles, nearly. The other uh, inaugural that I remember well is from a former colleague at Leicester University. Now, he was a political theorist and a long-standing member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, and at his inaugural, he uh, played the bagpipes. Um, but I suppose if you're a one-time Communist Party political theorist, all that is left for you to do is play the bagpipes. <laughs> Actually, I have to also say that uh, I have uh, given uh, an inaugural before at Leicester University, uh, but it was certainly not uh, an experience I would like to repeat. It took place actually on 18th of March 2003. You might well remember it was the day before the outbreak of the Iraq War, and it took place amidst the uh, heated passions of that conflict. My lecture itself was, of course, a very sober analysis of the need uh, for a new political and strategic approach to address the security problems of the uh, 21st century and actually did not explicitly discuss the Iraq War. However, the uh, anti-war movement and the Socialist Worker Party latched onto my inaugural as the pro-war speech and announced a demonstration uh, and a picket of my lecture. As you can imagine, the atmosphere was, was somewhat tensed. Uh, in the end, there was only one disruption. Uh, a sort of hoodie got up and wrote something up, and well, we had chalkboards there. But, uh, uh, but uh, you can see that's why uh, when I was preparing for this inaugural, I chose uh, two of the biggest and burliest research postgraduates I could find to act as the ushers. So uh, they've been uh, given strict instructions to keep an eye on the, uh, the difficult members of the audience, and I can see Banzai Bernard sitting up there. You should keep an eye on him, and uh, Inglefor down there. I know he's a bit of a troublemaker. He's a bit of a rough crowd here, but let me move on. My theme today is uh, international security. What I want to do is to look at the risks, uh, the threats, and the challenges to uh, security and survival of discrete political communities in what is very much an anarchic, diverse, and pluralist international system. My central argument is that as academics, 
we need to recognize the complex processes of continuity and change that are reshaping our world. We need to recognize that the global system in the 21st century is undergoing profound and far-reaching changes. Very diff- we are living in a very different world from the one many of us grew up in. And this is forcing us to think afresh about the nature of international security and how best to respond to the new challenges and threats we face. My lecture in particular will focus on Europe, uh, Europe and the world, and look at the security challenges facing Europe in the 21st century. Again, here my central argument is that if the Cold War saw European security focused along along an east-west axis, given the perceived threat from the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact allies, in the 21st century, the central focus of European security will be north-south, with growing attention focused on the Middle East and North Africa, the global south and our doorstep. And my aim in this lecture is to outline some broad principles that should govern our analysis. Uh, I will not be offering specific policy prescriptions, but a more general academic and conceptual orientation. Uh, Let me just say a few words about my uh, research trajectory. I've worked on problems of international security, now with a focus on European security, for uh, over two decades. I worked at uh, Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs on the East-West Conflict, I worked on the notion of the return to Europe of the uh, new democracies of East Central Europe, on Germany's role, central role in the reshaping of Europe, uh, and on a series of issues from uh, the institutional architecture of the post-Cold War world to uh, just war ethics and coercive diplomacy. But perhaps I should also just note... uh, that I uh, seem to keep losing my research topics. Indeed, I I would speak of an inverse Midas effect. As you know, King Midas uh, of Greek mythology was someone that everything he touched turned to gold. Uh, I suppose the Greeks could could sure use him now. Uh, But my, uh, my inverse Midas effect is that everything I touch seems to fall apart. When I was at Chatham House working on the international security program, I was taken on to write a book on the East-West conflict in Europe. And by the autumn of 1989, I'd written chapters on the two Germanys, communist Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And of course, Cold War ended and I had to start all over again. Uh, In the 80s, late 80s, I was also developing a very nice research specialism on the German Democratic Republic on East Germany. Uh, and again, unfortunately, I lost my country. Uh, then I decided that I'd better uh, get a topic that had some staying power. So I, I had some basic Russian, and I worked hard on my Russian, only to see the Soviet Union disintegrate as well. And I won't even mention my uh, PhD, uh, which was on the democratic road to socialism, which uh, better, uh, least said on that, the, the better. Anyway, I also remember when I was at uh, Chatham House in, the early, uh, in early 1990, amidst the full bloom of hopes for a new world order and a Europe whole and free, 
one of the senior fellows at the Institute joked that I would soon be out of, the, out of a job and that the uh, International Security Programme uh, no longer served any useful purpose. Unfortunately, her assumptions were very shortly to be dashed. The end of the Cold War, as we all know now, did not spell the end of history, uh, but rather recast problems of security in a new and much more complex and, to be honest, much more bloody form than in the Cold War itself. And the uncomfortable and the tragic truth is that international security studies is more, not less, in demand two, de two decades after the end of the Cold War. And that liberal idealist hopes of an end to war, conflict and security competition have proven uh, ill-founded. The first question I want to address is what actually we mean by international security. The subfield of international security studies is, broadly speaking, two decades old. And the central trend over these last two decades has been towards a steady deepening and widening of the concept of security. International security no longer focuses uh, narrowly on state security, military threats, and the balance of power but it focuses on a much wider range of threats on more actors and a much more comprehensive set of policy instruments. It is now widely accepted that security is not just state security, but it's security for peoples and communities. Also that the nature of the threat has changed. Today, actually, we tend to speak more of risks and challenges rather than threats. And we also include new issues like cyber attacks and energy security. It's also the case that while states remain the primary providers of security, even the most powerful states today recognize the need to work with and through international organizations and multilateral arrangements in order to address what is a very complex global security agenda. And finally, it's also now widely accepted that security policy is not just about military instruments. It's about using, uh, utilizing a, a full range of instruments and policies from development aid and diplomacy to advice on elections and social welfare programs. Indeed, the key term that encapsulates these uh, changes and this broadened uh, concept of security is the notion of complex emergencies. We, or international organizations like the EU and NATO, now tend to speak of complex emergencies which require a full range of instruments and involve a wide range of actors, from the UN to NGOs. However, security remains an essentially contested concept. The uh, concept of security as Barry Bazan has famously argued, is uh, essentially contested. It's not just that we might have uh, different ideas about homeland security today than in the past, but it's also because um, many academics from the liberal idealist persuasion have uh, taken 
what is a sensible and obvious truth that um, security is not simply about military threats to states. And they've pushed this uh, obvious truth to its logical absurdity. For some, for example, international security today is essentially about human rights. Others define security as development aid, security as development policy. Or others define it as climate change. Indeed, for Ken Booth and critical security studies, as it's known, uh, security is not really about preventing armed conflict and minimizing threats to international communities. Rather, it involves a much more radical political project that seeks to eliminate the causes of human misery and oppression, which Ken Booth would argue include capitalism, patriarchy, religions, and nations. In short, this is the, uh, the argument that security is basically about a form of human emancipation. The problem that I would uh, focus on here is that if security is broadened and deepened too far, it loses its analytical focus and its conceptual clarity. It becomes, in other words, about everything and nothing. What I would argue is that international security studies is not about emancipation, human rights, climate change, or development aid. These are all important things, but security, international security, has a much more precise and focused uh, agenda. And that is basically the focus on identifying the causes of violent conflict and the conditions of peace. And here I would quote Alexander Vent. Alexander Vent is, uh, is no realist. He's a liberal and social constructivist. But he has also argued uh, that regulating violence is one of the most fundamental problems of order in social life. Because the nature of violence technology, who controls it, and how it is used, deeply affect all other social relations. Now, um, it will perhaps already be apparent to some of you that my own approach to the study of international security studies is rooted in the realist tradition of international relations theory. In working primarily within this tradition, I found myself uh, plowing a lonely furrow. There are, indeed, in Europe, uh, very few realists, and certainly very few, if any, in the UK. Indeed, in 2005, the American uh, offensive realist, John Mearsheimer, uh, famously described Britain as a realist-free zone, a realist-free zone, which makes me the only open and explicit realist in the UK. Now, for most of my colleagues in the British international relations community, realism is the other. It's, a, it's the other against which they define their own liberal, constructivist, critical theory, or postmodern approaches. And this is, I would argue, why realism is both widely misunderstood and frequently misrepresented. Back in the 1960s, Jean-Paul Sartre famously argued that in French universities, Marxism was taught in order to be dismissed. Much the same can be said for realism in British universities. It's taught 
in order to be dismissed. This is probably not the case in Bath. I know some of the Euromasters uh, students have already <laughs> commented, not complained, commented that they had five lectures on realism uh, last semester, only two from me, but uh, they certainly get their full of re- realism here. But the, uh, the reason for this is that realism is widely seen as state-centric, militaristic, and politically reactionary. Realism, indeed, is seen as the dark side of international relations, advocating a Machiavellian approach to foreign policy and military solutions to political problems. It is widely condemned as amoral at best and immoral at worst. And as Andrew Linklater, a leading UK normative theorist and someone who spoke here not that long ago, has argued, to a far greater extent than any other perspective, neorealism has highlighted the moral impoverishment of the study of international relations. Now, uh, before my family and friends begin worrying about me, Um, before my daughters fear that I'm turning from Anakin Skywalker into Darth Vader, let me briefly outline why I have drawn on the theoretical and conceptual toolbox of realism in my study of international security. The first thing to note is that realists are not uh, unprincipled, unprincipled militarists and warmongers. Indeed, most realists oppose the Vietnam War, like Niebuhr, Uh, Waltz, Morgenthau, and more recently opposed the Iraq War. Both Mearsheimer and Stephen Waltz spoke out against the Iraq War. Secondly, realism is not politically conservative or anti-liberal. Indeed, Robert Gilpin has said, you know, you scratch a realist, you find, uh, you scratch a realist, you find, you know, a liberal. Uh, And indeed, uh, the person who stands highest in my pantheon of realist thinkers is Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr was the founder of the American Socialist Party. I mean, it didn't have a long and glorious uh, future, but uh, his, he also was someone who, uh, who saw the election of the 1945 Labour government in this country as one, as one of the most positive and hopeful events of the 20th century. So, not, so realism is not politically conservative. Realism, I would argue, is basically a form of critical thinking, It it provides a way of challenging the common-sense assumptions of a liberal age. The key features of realism are, first of all, realists look at the world as it is, not as it ought to be. They argue that only then can we understand the causes of conflict and how to build peace. And Hans Morgenthau, again famously argued that Political realism does not require, nor does it condone, indifference to political ideals and moral principles. But it requires a sharp distinction between the desirable and the possible, between what is desirable everywhere and at all times, and what is possible under the concrete circumstances of time and place. Secondly, the realist tradition, realists recognize the pluralism and diversity of international politics. There's an acceptance within the realist tradition of the other, of different cultures, of different religions, different values and traditions. They recognize, realists recognize that the world cannot be remade in our image and that Western values 
and not necessarily universal values. Thirdly, realists clearly focus on power. They focus on how power is distributed, the nature of power, and on the implications of concentrations of power. And I would argue that the central, real, uh, the central weakness of liberal idealist approaches to international relations is, as E.H. Carr noted, their almost, to- quote, total neglect of power. Realists insist that you cannot understand international politics without understanding power, and that peace cannot be built by ignoring the balance of power. Fourthly, realists, or the realist tradition is very much about exploring the complexities, the dilemmas, the paradoxes of international politics. Within realist, the realist tradition, there is a recognition that there are often no simple solutions to complex problems. And the realist tradition has also been very centrally concerned with exploring the ethical dilemmas in international politics. And a recognition that the choice we face is often not between good and evil, but between the lesser of two evils. And that good intentions often lead to unintended consequences. Tony Blair uh, has frequently said his motives in leading this country to war in Iraq were, you know, were good intentions. Were of, but the outcome has been, uh, has been disastrous. Hence, realists insist that we need to be sceptical about projects for realising abstract utopias based on ideas about how the world ought to be rather than how it is and that we need to be prudent in our actions. The fifth and final point is that for realists, war and the use of coercive power is sometimes the least bad of the alternatives, and that pacifism is not morally defensible. Slavery was ended in the Confederate States of America by war, The Holocaust was ended by military victory in the Second World War. And the failure to use military force led 7,000 Muslim men and boys to be slaughtered in Srebrenica. Okay, let me move on to the theme of peace and justice. In 1952, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who uh, who I've mentioned, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was asked what he thought the most important guiding principle for U.S. foreign policy should be. He did not list freedom or democracy or any of those staples of Cold War ideology. Rather, he spoke of justice. Justice is the guiding principle. And justice is, quite rightly, a central moral, ethical, and political concern. But the problem is, what is justice? How can it be realized? And how can it be combined with other principles and values, especially peace? It is often, I think, quite rightly pointed out that no peace can be durable unless it is just. The problem, however, in establishing a just and durable peace is twofold. First, justice is a two-edged sword, Claims of justice are frequently used to legitimize war and violence. 
Thus, for example, last week we heard Radovan Karadzic defend his actions in the Bosnian wars, war as being a just war. Similarly, Hamas rejects peace with Israel and pursues terrorist attacks on civilians on the grounds of justice. Secondly, making peace often involves negotiating with those who have blood on their hands. This is the case, this has been the case in Northern Ireland. It was also the case in the Balkans. And linked to this is the problem that seeking justice for human rights abuses, for example, can sometimes be an obstacle to peace. This is the case in Sudan, where the International Criminal Court's decision to issue an arrest warrant for President Omar al-Bashir in May 2008 for war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Darfur has complicated the search for peace. As two leading uh, experts on the Sudan have uh, argued, actually, in The Guardian in May 2008, Julie Flint and Alex Duval, to put justice before peace spells disaster for Sudan. They argued there will be no justice in Sudan without peace. When peace and justice clash as they do in Sudan, peace must prevail. In wrestling with the dilemma of peace and justice, there can be no easy solutions. There are only painful and difficult moral and political dilemmas. And again, I would argue that it is the realist tradition which provides the wealth of intellectual resources for grappling with the dilemmas of peace and justice. Reinhold Niebuhr argued, politics will, to the end of history, be an area where conscience and power meet, where the ethical and coercive factors of human life will interpenetrate and work out their tentative and uneasy compromises. He also argued that uh, the concern of what he called collective man cannot be, quote, the creation of an ideal society in which there will be uncoerced and perfect peace and justice, but a society in which there will be enough justice and in which coercion will be sufficiently nonviolent to prevent his common enterprise from issuing into complete disaster. Okay, let me uh, move on then uh, in the time remaining to look at uh, the dilemmas of security in a liberal age. As we seek to think about how a more just and peaceful international order can be forged in the 21st century, we need to begin by understanding the forces that are shaping global politics and security. And here I'll focus uh, briefly on five key trends and factors. The first is the problem of war in a time of peace. The great paradox of our liberal age is that at the very time when many academics in the liberal idealist tradition were broadening and expanding the concept of security and emphasizing soft power and non-military solutions to security problems, European and American armed forces have been more active than ever before, in a wide range of military missions and conflicts. Indeed, 
the American Marine General uh, Charles Krulax said at the end of the 90s that since 1990, the U.S. Marine Corps has responded to crises at a rate equal to three times that of the Cold War, on average once every five weeks. We must also not forget that the 1990s began and ended with war in Iraq and in Kosovo. Thus, it's a sad but, I think, inescapable conclusion that as the Australian counterinsurgency expert David Kilcullen has said, quote, ground warfare is far from a thing of the past for Western democracies. But what we also need to recognize, I would stress, is the need to recognize the very profound changes that are taking place in the very nature of war and armed conflict. As General Sir Rupert Smith, who also spoke here at Bath, we get all the top names here. As General Sir Rupert Smith has argued, the old paradigm of interstate industrial warfare, which was exemplified by the two world wars of the 20th century, that old paradigm is being replaced by a new one, a new one which he calls war amongst the people. And you'll be aware, I think, that most of the conflicts of the post-Cold War era have fallen into uh, a sort of grey zone between high-intensity mechanised warfare on the one hand and peacekeeping on the other. These have variously been described as uh, military operations other than war, or the British term peace support operations. And the distinguishing feature of these uh, uses of military force is that they do not involve brute force in terms of overwhelming application of power, but are much more discriminate forms of, form of uh, coercive military power, focusing more on protecting the civilian population rather than the, the destruction of the enemy's armed forces. The second point that I want to, uh, to mention is the changing world order, indeed the change in the global balance of power. The most significant general trend that we face in the 21st century is the rise of the so-called BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. The, the term BRIC was, uh, was coined by Jim O'Neill of uh, Goldman Sachs, and he coined the term BRIC to refer to the emergence of these four countries as uh, dynamic emergent economies. Actually, uh, Jim O'Neill, you might also have noted, uh, is in the news again because he's one of the leading uh, red knights seeking to wrest control of Manchester United from uh, the Glazer brothers. Uh, I know some of you have an interest in football. Uh, 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 it was once famously said that football is more important than uh, more important a matter than life and death. Uh, but actually, let me return to the really important life and death issue: that is, the study of international security. Now, nothing is more important or more fascinating than that. The second key tr trend then that I would point to is this uh, really quite profound and far-reaching shift in the global balance of power. The rise of Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and trailing behind them, not far behind, countries like Mexico and South Africa. The significance of this is that it's bringing to an end almost 
five centuries of Western domination of the international system. For almost five centuries, it's been Europe, and then latterly the United States of America, who have dominated international politics. From about the 15th century onwards, European countries enjoyed a surge in economic uh, growth, in production, in technology, in scientific advantages, such that by the 17th century, they could militarily dominate much of the a wider international system. And the consequence of this has been that the international system in which uh, we, we live, the modern, in, the modern state system, has been primarily shaped by Western European powers. Since the uh, end of the, the, the Second World War, it's been shaped by the United States of America. All the key institutions of the international system, the UN, the Bretton Woods system, all are the product of the Americans in 1945. But the fact of the matter is that this period, this five centuries of Western domination of the international system is coming to an end. Not because so much of the decline of the West, but rather because of the rise of the rest, exemplified by the emergence of the BRIC countries. And the United States of America, which since the end of the Cold War has enjoyed a period of unipolarity, that period is ending. And one writer, Farid Sakaria, has argued that what we're moving into is a post-American world. Now, the precise implications of this shift are difficult to discern. Historically, significant shifts in the balance of power comparable to the one that's currently underway, have resulted in major great power war. I think at the very least we're likely to witness heightened security competition between the great powers as they, as they compete for influence and resources in places like Central Asia, Africa and the Middle East. But it's already, the rise of the BRIC countries is already complicating how we respond to international security problems. For example, the problem of Iran's opaque uranium enrichment program. China is blocking sanctions against, uh, uh, against Iran with the support of Brazil. So clearly we are experiencing a really quite profound shift in the global balance of power and this will change the way we approach uh, international security problems. The third point... Oh, sorry... I think I've, but, uh, yeah, slight uh, disjuncture between my uh, presentation and the slides. So. The uh, third point that I wanted to uh, make is a uh, mis- there is a mi- mismatch between the complex global security agenda we face and the, the 1945 multilateral institutions. The international system, the system of Uh, international governance that emerged at the end of the Second World War embodied above all in the United Nations and the UN system. That uh, UN system and the system of multilateral governance is increasingly unable to cope with the complex security problems of the 21st century. The 1945 rule-based order designed primarily by the Truman administration is increasingly proving proving, uh, ill-suited to deal with the challenges 
and the threats of the 21st century, whether in the shape of the global financial crisis or the proliferation of nuclear weapons. The United Nations Security Council represents the balance of power in 1945. It doesn't represent the real relationship, the real constellation of political forces in today's world. Similarly, international law itself is a weak basis for international security. Laws need to be enforced. And the problem of the, uh, of the international system is there is no effective enforcement uh, mechanism. Consequently, that's why Saddam Hussein was able to ignore 14 UN Security Council resolutions in the 1990s, and why Iran can ignore UN Security Council resolutions today. And therefore, I would argue we must avoid the mistake of believing in what George Kennan called the legalistic, moralistic approach to international problems. This takes me on to the fourth point, That is Europe and the Middle East. As I said at the start of my talk, during the Cold War, European security uh, was primarily focused on the east-west axis. In the 21st century, however, European security will be primarily orientated along a north-south axis, with EU and NATO countries facing a series of security risks, threats and challenges emanating from the Middle East and North Africa. The European security strategy of December 2003 lists five key threats to Europe, all of which are present in this troubled and yet geostrategically crucial region. These threats are terrorism, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, regional conflicts like the Gaza War or the Lebanon War of 2006, failed or failing states, and transnational criminal organizations, drugs and thugs uh, for short. The most pressing security problem we face today, I would argue, is the Iranian nuclear program. And this is quite clearly approaching a crunch time. Yet, we must also recognize that the Iranian, uh, the Iranian uranium enrichment program is also embedded within a much much more complex set of regional cleavages and tensions. In particular, the Sunni-Shia divide uh, in Iran's bid for regional hegemony in the Gulf and the wider Middle East is linked to the problems of Lebanon and Hezbollah, and it's also linked to the Israel-Palestine conflict and Hamas. And if we wish to address the security problems of the Middle East, We need some joined-up thinking. We can't approach just one uh, one of these puzzles. We need a more comprehensive um, approach towards tackling what I think will be the dominant security concerns of Europe in the 21st century. Fifth, uh, Fifth and finally, let me highlight what I think is a key problem facing Europe in the 21st century. And this was a problem that was uh, highlighted uh, by uh, US Secretary of Defense Robert Gates uh, about a week or so ago at a NATO meeting in Washington. Referring to the lack of NATO solidarity over Afghanistan and the problem of declining defense budgets in Europe, he said, 
Quote, these budget limitations relate to a larger cultural and political trend affecting the alliance. He went on, one of the triumphs of the last century was the pacification of Europe after ages of ruinous warfare. But, I believe, he said, uh, we have reached an inflection point where much of the continent has gone too far in the other direction. He continued, the demilitarization of Europe, where large swathes of the general public and political class are averse to military force and the risks that go with it, has gone from a blessing in the 20th century to an impediment to achieving real security and lasting peace in the 21st century. Now, I would argue that this is a problem because unless Europe develops the capabilities and the resolve to use military force as an instrument of last resort, we will be unable to defend our interests or to engage in crisis response operations to save strangers, i.e. in humanitarian intervention. Now, reflecting on the experience of peacemaking in the Balkan Wars of the 1990s, the Swedish foreign minister, Carl Bildt, said that military force was sometimes essential to back up diplomatic initiatives and open the way for the establishment of a stable peace. Force, he argued, should never be a substitute for diplomacy. But under the right conditions, it can give strength to the search for political solutions represented by diplomacy. UN Secretary of Sen- uh, former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan made a similar point. You can do a lot with diplomacy, he argued, but much more with diplomacy backed by effective military force. So military force, I would argue, is sometimes a necessary adjunct to, di- to diplomacy and political, uh, to, um, um, political engagement. And as Robert Cooper, Robert Cooper is a former uh, British Foreign Office uh, uh, official who now is a key uh, EU uh, uh, security policy advisor. And as Robert Cooper has noted, the challenge facing European democracies, quote, is to get used to the idea of double standards. In their dealings with one another, he argues, democracies... Uh, quote, may operate on the basis of laws and open cooperative security. But when dealing with problems like Iran, North Korea, Al-Qaeda, or Somali pirates, he says, quote, we need to revert to the rougher methods of an earlier era. Force, preemptive attack, deception, whatever is necessary. Among ourselves, he concludes... We must keep the law, but when we are operating in the jungle, we must also use the laws of the jungle. Conclusion. I recognise that this inaugural has been uh, quite a gallop through the field of international security studies, and and that I have uh, undoubtedly raised uh, more questions and probably (laughs) raised more heckles than uh, certainly than the questions I've answered. But I would argue that this lecture should be seen as part of the ongoing conversation in the discipline of international relations about the nature of international security. Michael Oakeshott, the uh, English philosopher, 
In his essay, The Voice of Poetry in the Conversation of Mankind, argues that a conversation consists of many different voices, reflecting different sorts of knowledge, all of which may uh, potentially have something of value to contribute. Conversations, Oakeshott argues, may be dominated for a, for a time by one voice and by one idiom of knowledge, but others can also make a contribution. For a time, some voices may be heard more than others, but if a conversation is to be sustained and have value for its participants, there must be space for many different theories and approaches. And my aim here has been to contribute a realist voice to the conversation on international security, which for too long, I would argue, has been dominated by liberal idealists of one stripe or another. In doing so, I hope to open up space for discussion and not to close it down, and therefore facilitating a more nuanced and balanced conversation on international security in the 21st century. And finally, let me... uh, Let me note that the qualities required for a uh, professor of international politics are very much the same as those that Winston Churchill suggested were essential for a politician. Namely, the ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. And to have the ability to explain afterwards why it didn't happen. Thank you very much for your attention. As Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, I'd like to thank Adrian for his provocative inaugural lecture about the changing international order. I particularly like the way that Adrian, unlike um, Catherine Bigelow's much overrated The Hurt Locker, had something fundamental to say about both human nature and the causes of war. Though I have to confess, I think her visuals were rather better than a, a pinup of muscles from Brussels and the still of the United Nations building. My main regret in this lecture is that we no longer have the practice of taking question and answer after the lecture, because I think Adrian's realist views would have provoked some lively comments, and not just from the SWP members present who conflate realism with warmongering. So to finish, I'm sure we'd all like to thank Adrian once more for his words of wisdom about war, peace and justice. <laughs>